Welcome to another episode of Facts. It has been a while since we've done another episode because I've been busy studying, speaking at conferences, doing a summer series on how we got the Gospels, things like that. So with that being said, it has been difficult to actually get on here and do another podcast. I've not forgotten about it. I've been working on probably about four different books of the Bible and putting together the material to release new episodes upcoming uh, today being James, uh, but upcoming, we do have the book of Revelation. Uh, I also have the book of Hebrews and second Peter all in the near future. So keep your eyes open for that. Uh, it's been a good a break in the midst of all this, because like I said, it's been busy. It's been doing recordings. It's been on other talk shows, been on other YouTube channels and podcasts, as well as going, uh, to speak at these different apologetics conferences, as well as equipping the church really on how to defend the canon of scripture and what we have in it. And that's been one of the biggest joys for me is being around the church, being around the people, teaching them things, showing them things, instructing, and they learn and they're learning and they're excited about it. To me, that is one of the biggest blessings of doing this kind of work. But today we're going to talk about the Epistle of James, and quite frankly, it's disputed, and understandably so as to why it is disputed. But we're going to jump right into the historical arguments about how it was disputed in some ways, but not as much as people think it was. It was more of tracing it down. One, tracing it down to an author. Two, tracing it down to where it was transmitted. And so with all of those factors that we have to look into today. We're going to look at some of the writings of origin. Uh, we're going to take a look at Jerome as well, because I think he's important on this and Athanasius and his listings to kind of give us an idea of where uh, the book of James originated, to whom it was addressed and who wrote that letter and addressed it. And I think if we just kind of consider some of the data today, I really think it won't be that difficult to pinpoint. Origen said this, but when our Lord Jesus comes, whose arrival that prior to the son of none designated, he sends priests, his apostles bearing trumpets hammered thin, the magnificent heavenly instruction of proclamation. Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, Luke and John each played their own priestly trumpets. Even Peter cries out with trumpets in two of his epistles, which we'll, we'll come out to that again when we're dealing with origin, he's talking about his commentary of Joshua seven and that the trumpets, and he's kind of, again, spiritualizing it outside of its context. And origin was big at allegory. And one of the things that he allegorized is that in the making of God sounding his trumpet for the arrival of Christ and his work, he utilized trumpets in the persons of their writings being Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then he mentions Peter in two of his, and then he also says James and Jude. Now, some of you that watch the Jude podcast know that this is similar to what we talked about because we use the same quote in relation to Jude. He also said in Genesis 13, 2 commentary of what, what we would call Genesis 13, 2, he utilized the same idea, but calling it New Testament scripture. He said, Isaac therefore digs wells, new wells, nay, rather Isaac's servants dug them. Isaac's servants of Ma are Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. His servants are Peter, James, Jude, the apostle Paul, and his servant. 
these all dig the wells of the New Testament. So what we have written for us here by Origen is that he is claiming that James, by the time the second century, when he's probably writing this into the third, that James is a New Testament writing. It is scripture. It is one of the proclamation letters that God used to announce Jesus and his arrival and his work and his ministry. That is what we're seeing in Origen's writings, just in commentaries. Jerome states, James, who is called the brother of the Lord, surnamed the just, or James the just, or James the righteous, after our Lord's passion, at once ordained by the apostles, Bishop of Jerusalem, wrote a single epistle. Now, that's important to note. He wrote a single epistle, just one, which is reckoned among the seven Catholic epistles, giving us the other letters that we've already done, one of them being Jude, and we're going to look into some of the other ones coming up. He's recognizing it as James the Just being the half-brother of Jesus who is connected to one epistle amongst the seven Catholic epistles. And in this, he claimed by some to have published by someone else under his name, and gradually as time went on, it had gained authority. So also Jerome's telling us that this was published, this single epistle, this writing of James, was possibly, or the rumor is, or some of the information he received from these churches, is that they actually published it later, after James's death, on behalf of James. So we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want you to keep that in mind, that Jerome did know of some material that stated that James was circulating after James's death, and somebody else published it. Athanasius, in his 39th Festival letter, that he wrote in 367 said this, since some have taken in hand to set in order for themselves the so-called Apocrypha to mingle them with the God-inspired scripture, concerning which we have attained to a sure persuasion according to what the original eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered unto our fathers. Now notice what Athanasius is saying. Athanasius is being abundantly clear that this is something that was going on. This is something that was being utilized by the churches as apocryphal, not the same as inspired texts. So note that right off the beginning, that, that he realizes there are works that did not get passed on to them by the fathers in the form of apocryphal texts, under probably the name of many of the apostles. And he said, I have been urged by true brethren and having investigated the matter from the beginning, have decided to set forth in order the writings that have been put into the canon. Now, he's using a lot of the terminology, really, of, of Luke and his openings. But he's setting forth these writings, putting an orderly list together of what is canon, what did actually come as inspired his word, inspired scripture, and have been handed down and confirmed as divine. Not, not picked. Not picked, but handed down from the right sources, being apostolic authority sources, in order that everyone who has been led astray may condemn the seducers and everyone who's remained stainless may rejoice, being again reminded of that. Then he goes through his list. After them, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles and the seven so-called Catholic epistles of the Apostles, namely one of James, two of Peter, three of John, and after this, one of Jude. So Athanasius is including with the divine holy scriptures, what he called God-inspired scriptures, the one letter of James. It is recognized. It was passed down by the fathers all the way to the point where he even received it there in Alexandria, Egypt. So externally, 
all the way to time of origin and all the way to the time that we have Athanasius and Jerome investigating this, they already call it scripture. They're already calling it a part of the New Testament. Now, I do realize that there's not a lot of attestation that gives it that kind of affirmation. And I'm going to tell you why I believe that is the case. But we do see here major leaders in churches. <clears throat> By the way, I picked them specifically. Uh, now, Origen did move to Caesarea, so I include that in his region. And then you have Athanasius in Alexandria, Egypt. And then if you go all the way to Jerome, you have that in Rome. So we have different regions saying the same thing about this letter. But I want you to see kind of the internal evidence in addition to these attestations. Now, I want to go back to what Jerome said. Jerome made it clear that he believed that this was the brother of the Lord, this being James the Just, as he stated. And I, and I really do believe that it was. And I want to show you some similarities as to why I believe that is the case. There are similarities between James and Acts 15, where you're at the Council of Jerusalem. James, the brother of the Lord, James the Just, he gets up in front of the brothers and he starts to speak to them. And wording that he uses in that speech amongst the apostles and the brothers that were there, he see, we see similarities between it and terminology in the epistle of James. So, for example, uh, Cairo is found in James 1.1. 1, 1. It's also in Acts 15.23. It's also in Acts 23.26. Also in Acts 15.17 and James 2.7, you see the statement of evoking God's name in a special way. You see the parallels there. Also his exhortation that he gives to the brothers, the Adelphoi, to hear him uh, out when he's speaking to them is paralleled in James 2.5 and Acts 15.13. Uh, the not so common individual words are also found between them both. So those are more common, but there's also not so f common words found between them as well, like in James 1.27 and Acts 15.14, uh, Epistorethane in James 5.19 and Acts 15.19, Terrain over in James 1.27 and Acts 15.29. In fact, there's a whole phrase there. Terrain there being in, involved in that phraseology is only used similarly to how James speaks to the church's leaders there at the Council of Jerusalem and how he speaks to the people there in, in, in James 1.27. So you have parallels in Acts 15.29 and James 1.27, just as you do in James 5.19 and Acts 15.19. Uh, also in James 1.16, and then he reuses the word in verse 19 and in chapter 2, verse 5, same word, agape toss there in Acts 15.25, connecting to all three of those usages in James. So, Again, we do see similarities to what Jerome is saying. It's not just an external claim. There's actually reason to believe this. We can actually take his speech. We can take a letter and we can say, all right, are there similarities? Does that absolutely prove it? No, it doesn't. But again, we're trying to build a cumulative case. We have external statements. The only other disputes out there would be is that which James it may have been outside of James, the brother of Jesus. Some believe it to be James, the apostle or James, the other apostle, James the Less. So James, the brother of John, or James the Less. It would not likely be James, the brother of John. He would have died by that time. He was killed, uh, the first of the apostles to be martyred. But we do see it could be James the Less. But based on his regional explorations and based on the attestation that we do have, he seems to be eliminated from the potentiality of this. And 
He's writing as a leader to people out of a dispersion from Jerusalem. We know that James the Less actually moved into a different region. He did not stay in Jerusalem. Whereas we do know James the Just became the bishop there, the first ever bishop there in Jerusalem, working alongside the apostles all the way to his martyrdom. So it fits the mold better for it to be him that's a part of this group than the others. Now, where would we date a letter like this? Now, there's a wide expansion of date. I mean, anywhere from before 50 AD all the way down into the second century. Now, one of the things that I want to make the point of, and I want to actually give my opinion, that this letter is actually a letter that is the earliest New Testament writing. I believe it was probably around the same time the Gospel of Mark, uh, but maybe a little bit earlier than Mark. It is distinctly Jewish in its nature. I mean, it suggests that it was composed when the church was actually still predominantly Jewish. There's not really much of a statement outside of Jewish terminology, Jewish literature, Jewish salutations. In the midst of this, there's really no addressing of the issues of Gentile and Jew in the same church. It is a predominantly Jewish congregation. Amongst, there's also used... Jewish terms like Lord of hosts in chapter five, verse four, very commonly used in the Old Testament, not very often used by the other New Testament writers writing to Gentile churches. Uh, you also have terms like in chapter three, verse six, he talks about Gehenna. You don't see that often used in the New Testament writers epistles. You do see the concept of it predominantly in the gospel writings and in the teachings of Jesus. But again, Jesus' ministry is circulated around Israel. It also reflects a simple church order. Officers of the church are called elders, chapter 5, verse 14, which we see also utilized in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. Terms like teachers in chapter 3, verse 1. We don't see the development stage here as much with terms like bishops or even the idea of deacons. They have not been brought into the equation yet. This seems to be a very simple church order and format. There are no references made to the controversy of circumcision, which was one of the issues that was debated at the Council of Jerusalem is what they should do with Gentiles and should they circumcise them or not. There's no dispute. There's no discussion. There's no early format of this in this very epistle. The Greek term for synagogue, or meeting is used to designate the meeting place of the church in chapter 2, verse 2. This kind of concept, this was very early on before expulsions and major uh, expulsions that led to them having to almost do church underground, if you would. So it seems to me that the potential dating of this is before the Council of Jerusalem. I think more as we go through this, that'll make sense. I believe it's somewhere between 46 and 49. To me, that is a viable date based on those terms. But there's also in other indicators as well. The letters make no mention to the Jerusalem Council at all. Paul references back to it in his, and he's one of the earliest writers in the New Testament. He refers back to it, which probably occurred around 49-50 AD. There's also reference to persecutions in chapter 2, verse 6. And they're in the present tense. If you go to the verbs there that are being used by James, he's speaking about persecution in the present tense. And it indicates a stage of suffering which has not yet been brought to calmness and peace. 
Also in AD 44, the churches of Judea were exposed to the persecution inflicted by Herod Agrippa, in which James, the brother of John, was killed back in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. That's around 44. So heat is beginning and persecution and death as a result of believing in Jesus is becoming a regular problem in the church, starting in AD 44 with James, the brother of John. So it probably would be sandwiched somewhere between these two timelines. It is also possible that the allusion to the hungry and the naked and the poor was from the suffering of the famine that was foretold by Agabus in Acts 11, 8, 28 through 30, and usually identified with one mentioned by Josephus and his antiquities, which was around 45 AD, which was after that time of James, the brother of John's martyrdom. So if this is the illusion and the terminology is present active and you see things like hungry, naked, and poor as a result of being a follower of Christ, you see the terminology coming here. It's foretold by Agabus and Acts. Josephus records it around the time of 45, 46. We can see that this is building toward an epistle where the accumulative case of you have external evidence, you have internal evidence pointing you to a specific writer. His terminology is way of speaking, his predominance as a leader in Jerusalem and a timeline with these eight indicators that I've given you show that this would be around the time between 45 and 49 AD, in my opinion. Now, he deals with the diaspora, this dispersion that took place. The question would be, which dispersion is this? Again, another indicator for us. There were two dispersions, the eastern dispersion and the western dispersion. The eastern dispersion consisted of the lands across the Euphrates, and the descendants of most of the northern tribes scattered pretty much up to Babylon by that point. Had James written a letter to particularly that group, it would have likely been written in Aramaic. You say, Stephen, why do you believe that? Well, that's how Josephus wrote his first edition of the Jewish Wars into that group. He wrote to that group in his Jewish Wars first edition, and it was written in Aramaic. This being in Greek would indicate something different. There's also a Western diaspora in this dispersion, and this would be consistently mostly the tribes of Judah, Levi, Benjamin, and the South. James would have likely written a letter to them at this point, if it is in that timeline, in Hebrew or in Greek. Now, that's how Matthew wrote his first edition to these groups, and specifically that group in Jerusalem, was he was giving them a gospel account in the Hebrew language, potentially, potentially Aramaic, but more than likely Hebrew language, so that they could understand it, who are being converted out of Judaism. That would be most of that group that would be consistent of the Western diaspora later. So it would be very likely he wrote it in that language or Greek. So the question that should be asked is, which group did James write to? Which diaspora did he write to, the Eastern or the Western? Well, I actually believe the answer is both. The simplest reasoning is he addresses the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This would indicate that he was writing to both groups, and Greek being the language would be the one that would be able to reach both. You just wrote it in Aramaic, you might hurt one group. If you just wrote it in Hebrew, you might hurt another group. But if you write it in Greek, which is a universal language, trade language, both groups would have the ability to have that letter being utilized, read, understood, and uh, retransmitted out as well. So Greek being the language while maintaining strong Jewish roots, because even though it's written in Greek, wonderful Greek, may I add, phenomenal Greek, one of the best in the New Testament, it still maintains Jewish roots all through a Greek writing like this. 
and it would unify both groups uh, to give us the indicator that in Koine Greek, they both could have had it and received it. Now, what I believe is taking place inside of this letter is that G James is actually giving application to the, really, I would say the interpretation that Jesus did on the Sermon of the Mount and sharing what Jesus said about the law and what it should look like based on his interpretation on the Sermon of the Mount. And James is coming behind his brother, Jesus, and he's actually giving the application of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and what it looks like in their current context. I believe that's what's taking place here. Now, let me give you examples. I don't just say that uh, to say that. I actually believe there's reasons behind that. Chapter one, verse two, he talks about joy in the midst of trials. Now, we don't have time to do this, and I want you to do this in your own time, but compare these things. James 1, 2 to Matthew 5, 10 through 12. In James 1, 4, he talks about exhortation and moving them on to perfection and completeness. Jesus deals with this concept in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 48. Asking for good gifts in chapter 1, verse 5. Read what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7 and following. Anger. How do you deal with anger? Chapter 1, verse 20. Compare that with what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22. Hearers and doers of the word. Not just hearers only, but doers. James 1, 22. Compare that with what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 and following. Keeping the whole law. What that means and what that consists of. 2, 10 of James. Compare that with Matthew 5, 19. The blessings of those who show mercy. In chapter 2, verse 13. Compare that with what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 7. The blessings of peacemakers in chapter 3, verse 18, and how Jesus amplified that in Matthew 5, 9. That friendship with the world is actually choosing enmity with God in chapter 4, verse 4 of James, compared with what Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 24. Against judging others unjustly, as Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 1, 5, James deals with that in, in James 4, 11 through 12. In James 5, 2 and following, he deals with moss and ruths coming in and spoiling riches. Jesus deals with that same thing in Matthew 6, 19. Using the prophets as an example of suffering and, and their work and their ministry, as Jesus did in Matthew 5, 12, James did the same thing in James 5, 10. Taking oaths, James deals with that in James 5, 12, as did Jesus in Matthew 5, 33, and following. And what it looks like to me here is that James is actually giving the application of the Servant of the Mount where Jesus was expositing the law, putting it in its rightful, proper context. And James is saying, now this is what it looks like in play. This is what it looks like in practice. I believe that's what James is doing. Now, James uses innumerable, a large amount of what I, what I call, what actually Bauckham would call literary forms in James. Now, Bauckham gives quite a few, and I'm not going to go through all of these. He deals with concise statements of principle. He gives examples, examples of that because what we're going to learn from James is that he was well-educated well in the Proverbs, of course. I don't think anybody watching this that has studied James or Proverbs would struggle to see that. But more than Proverbs, he was actually getting into Ben Sirach. He was getting into Tobit, the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, he is utilizing the same principles of literary forms that you find in these other wisdom literatures. 
His usage of the Beatitudes with motive clauses, for example. Same way the Sirach, same way Tobit does, same way Jesus does in Matthew 5, 3, James does in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 12. The whoever statements, like in chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 20. He uses those same that you find over in Proverbs. You find them in the wisdom of Solomon. You find the whoever statements building. Jesus used that same form in wisdom teaching. Conditional sayings, like in chapter 1, verse 5 and 3, 2. If you compare those with the Sirach, chapter 27, verse 3, you find wisdom literature where you have concise statements of principle. That's what James is doing. He's writing out principled understandings of Jesus's teachings. You see synonymous parallelism, like in chapter four, verse eight, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is frequently used throughout Jewish literature. It's implemented in Proverbs, in the Psalms, in the Wizard of Solomon. James uses it in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. He uses it throughout his entire epistle following the concise statements of principle. We have other statements too. I mean, you, you look at the wisdom admonitions with motive clauses like he does in chapter 1, 19 through 20, compared with Proverbs 3, 6, Tobit 4, 5, and 6, Sirach 30, 13. He gives these admonitions and then a motive clause for the admonition. Why should you do it? Because here's the motive. Recipro uh, reciprocating statements that are used in his writings. Judgments will be without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The tongue sets alight the cycle of existence and will be set alight by hell. The harvest of the righteous in peace is sown by those who make peace. These are reciprocating statements used often in wisdom literature. So the writer here, and there's others, he does debate sayings like the Sirach does in chapter 15, verse 11 and following. He goes through like, do not say I'm doing the Lord's will or I will do this and then this will happen. And then you turn around and I do like, don't make those kinds of statements. It's almost challenging a debate to be consistent he does the same thing in James as the writer of Ben Sirach does. Folks, we see these patterns, these forms. You see similitudes and parables and all of these kinds of things. And again, for the sake of time, we don't have to go, we don't have time to go through illustration and comparison and uh, form A and form B. Bauckham does a wonderful job of those things in his book. But if you consider the fact that whoever wrote this, that the main point I want to get at is in all these literary forms. Now, Bauckham gives multiple. I really believe you can condense them down pretty well. Uh, I would say there's anywhere between five and six literary forms he's practicing in other wisdom literature things and borrowing the same format that Jesus used in his teachings, like on the Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew and at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You see him utilizing same forms that are used in other types of literature or teachings of wisdom. And his application is phenomenal because it gives us a framework for what Jesus taught and what that looks like under pressure. Now, his application of the law throughout the teachings of Jesus are also indicators to us that whoever wrote this was trained in the Old Testament, trained in the teachings of Jesus, and whoever penned it was a great scribe. Now, I do not personally believe that James, the brother of Jesus, physically wrote this letter. We've talked about this numerous times. 
Yes, he grew up a carpenter's son, but once they became followers of Jesus, they did not go back to these trades. They maintained their learning and their education as the disciples of Jesus. They maintained that. They consistently moved forward in their understanding and their training and their teaching and their writing. It wouldn't surprise me if James was able to learn very well in his studies, but more than likely it wasn't James. He probably had an amanuensis who helped him write this, as we see many of the other New Testament writers, who is skilled at actually utilizing the wisdom literature. So whoever was penning it, even if it wasn't James, James would have certainly, as an author, been very involved in the Old Testament law, very familiar with Jesus's teachings, but particularly would have been able to utilize the literary forms that you find in all of these other Jewish wisdom lit. And therefore, it would have been not just James, but if he used an amanuensis, he would have been head skilled. In fact, it's very possible that James was the brains behind the letter and that there was a scribe that was skilled in the wisdom writing who was able to create a letter for James in the literary forms that he does. And they work together as a team to accomplish this. Now, he applies the law of the teachings of Jesus, particularly through the royal law, Leviticus 19, when describing love your neighbor as yourself. And the format that James was to utilize the law as exegeted or interpreted by Jesus by giving practical application to what it looked like to live out the gospel in their current context and in their current conditions, as we see in Matthew 22, 40, Matthew 5 through 7. It should also be noted that James doesn't mention the royal law of Leviticus 19 and that's it. Like, just mentions it, moves on. No, he actually gives a systematic layout of its content throughout the whole letter. So he doesn't just cover Leviticus 19, love your neighbor, the royal law. He actually goes through that whole section in Leviticus 19 and goes through verse 12, goes through verse 13, goes through verse 15, 16, 17, 18. If you compare Leviticus 19.12 to James 5.12, Leviticus 19.13 to James 5.4, Leviticus 19.15 to James 2.1 and 9, Leviticus 19.16 with James 4.11, Leviticus 19.17 with James 5.20, Leviticus 19.18 with James 5.9, what you're going to find is that he was not just utilizing Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but he even goes back and exegetes the Levitical law and its application. So the law and Jesus are relevant to the New Testament church and their way of doing things. And James implements not just the royal law statement, but the whole section around it in Leviticus 19 to the church in the rest of his epistle. But it cannot be ignored that he applied Leviticus 19 through the teachings of Jesus. And it doesn't take much to figure that out. Just compare chapter 4, verse 11 with Matthew 7, 1 and Matthew 5, 9 and with Matthew 7, 1 through 2 going through and comparing with James 5, 12 as well as Matthew 5, 33 through 37. It's there. Now, who else used this letter? So the question is, is why didn't James just verbatim quote Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Why didn't he just take uh, Matthew and he just quote him? It's clear, based on all the evidence I've given you, he's quoting similar teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. But why didn't he just quote Matthew? Well, here's the reason. I don't think Matthew is written yet. Uh, not the full form we have in Greek. As I stated before, and if you missed this, please go back to the podcast and watch. I did two entire episodes on Matthew and why I believe 
that there was a Hebrew Aramaic Matthew published long before the Greek and the Greek was published sometime around the late fifties into the early sixties, potentially. But there was a form of Matthew circulating in the churches and it was written to Jews, Jews who actually came out of Judaism and became followers of Jesus. Now, I do not believe the Hebrew Matthew is exactly what our Greek Matthew is today. I know some do. I gave multiple reasons as to why I don't believe that's the case. Again, go back and listen to that podcast if you missed it. But it is very possible that James did have Matthew's Hebrew Aramaic notes of Jesus' sermons because Matthew would have recorded those teachings as well as the Olivet Discourse. And I believe those two are Matthew's M material that preceded the compiled Greek Matthew we have today. And I believe that James uses both. I believe he would have that material. For example, in the beginning of James, he uses the wisdom teachings of Jesus, similar to how you see on the Sermon on the Mount. Then he goes into chapter five, and then all of a sudden, James turns into an apocalyptic teacher and time stuff, hitting the return aspect of the Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew. He's literally patterning his own epistle after the way Jesus taught on two mountain sermons. Sermon on the Mount, Olivet Discourse. Wisdom literature, apocalyptic warnings. It's quite incredible how James patterned himself after his brother and was using the same material that we have collectively and together only in Matthew's gospel, the way he's utilizing it. And that makes sense. If Matthew's gospel was circulating in Hebrew or Aramaic early on, James would have had that collected usage. Now, externally, we talked about all the church father, uh, the, the church fathers who stated it or the bishops who stated that these were canonical texts just as a way of building into that too. So you have your external claims, you have your internal evidence. There's also early usage of these books as well. James was used very early on by first Clement to the Corinthians in the first century. He quotes James 2, 23 in chapter 17, verse two. Then he quotes James 4, 6 in chapter 30, verse two. Polycarp, a disciple of John the Apostle himself, quotes James 1.17 and chapter 6, verse 1. And then the epistle of Barnabas, which is anywhere from the late 1st century into the 2nd century, alludes to James 1.8, and there are many others. It was used early on by men who were trained by the apostles, like Clement and Polycarp. And it was in apostolic writings very early on. And it was being used and alluded to in other works, like the epistle of Barnabas and so forth. So we do see that the book of James was already being used as authoritative in the first century into the second century. So no wonder Athanasius concluded what he concluded. No wonder Jerome concluded what he concluded. It was being early attested. Uh, Irenaeus seems to be referencing the phrase friend of God as it appears in James 2.23. Didymus the blind utilizes it in his writings and in his teachings. Excuse me. Somebody wrote for him. Obviously he was blind. And in his teachings, people recording his teachings, he goes through a commentary of James. Didymus does a commentary that was written for him. John Chrysostom mentions the idea in the, in the context of James when doing a sermon on Genesis 2. Augustine of Hippo does a commentary on, on James. And we have statements from like chapter 2, particularly, still on record. Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century does lectures and deals with James. He says, for if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives and he shall receive. Going back to that concept of James 1. Cyril of Alexandria, after him, 
uh, talked about the blessed James says that Abraham was justified by works when he was bounding Isaac, his son, on the altar. Doing his commentary on James on Romans 4, he does go back to the scene of James. The other church was using it. They were preaching from it. They were doing commentaries on it. They were utilizing it as authoritative scripture. So tying all this in, James seems to be an epistle that we should be really not too concerned about when it comes to authenticity. I really believe that when we deal with a letter like this, we see the external evidence actually agreeing with the internal. I think there's more internal evidence than there is external evidence early on to demonstrate that this was a follower of Jesus who heard the sermons of Jesus and had early records of them. And in the early records of them, they also published these records going out and showing the people who are under persecution how to live out those sermons that Jesus taught. Following the pattern of Jesus on his two sermons, uh, sermons that he did on mountains, being the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, James patterns himself after that, but also apparently uses a writer and amanuensis who is able to skillfully do the same style and literary forms that you find in Ben Sirach and that you find in Tobit and the Wisdom of Solomon and in Proverbs. And in doing this, he published a beautifully written work of a text that I believe is one of the earliest transmitted texts of scripture. Now, in conclusion, I want to say this. Why didn't James circulate so well? I believe this also pinpoints us folks to a earlier date. The Jews, when they received letters, it did not disperse well uh, because it stayed within their community. You don't see a lot of Old Testament writings going out into the Gentile world. Now, I know the Septuagint helped aid that, but as a whole, when letters were written to the Jewish communities, they typically stayed in the Jewish communities and were well protected. Matthew's gospel, for example, the reason it, it, it was needed to go into Greek was because they would never have been able to utilize it, hear me out, the same way they did the Greek. Why? Because most people don't know Hebrew or Aramaic. If you keep Matthew's gospel in Hebrew or Aramaic, you're only going to reach a community of Jewish people. So they were forced to put it into Greek at some point for the purpose of dispersing it into Gentile churches. And in doing so, we see a beautiful thing. Matthew was the earliest um, uh, gospel in Hebrew, but it also traveled the furthest in Greek. Matthew was most quoted. Just look at the Didache, look at the early church writers. They utilized Matthew the most. It traveled the furthest more than any of the other gospels. I believe it's because it was published from the main apostolic group still alive in Jerusalem at the time. That's what I believe happened. Again, go back to my uh, clips on that and my audio and my video clips of those. You'll find why, all my reasoning. But with that being said, what that does show us is that if it doesn't make it outside of the Jewish communities, it's going to stay in the Jewish communities and it needs to be in Greek. If this was written to the dispersion in the North and the South, or and the east and the west, if it were all 12 tribes, which particularly is split by, by west and east, but all 12 tribes, it would have been mostly distributed in the regions of the Jewish churches. Now, with that being said, it's no wonder that Origen was already utilizing it, calling it New Testament. And Jerome is one of the few that, now you think about it, there's not a lot of people that commented on it. You don't have the Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus obviously quotes from it. We see that. I gave an example. Uh, Tertullian doesn't have this big statement about it. Why is it that Origen and Jerome have the two biggest, like, complementary 
comments and statements about James. Think about it. Origen left Alexandria. He went to Caesarea. He even spent time around the Jewish churches. He would have utilized and realized the importance of this letter probably from the Jewish churches. He said, well, that, uh, okay, maybe that makes sense with Jerome, but what, or with uh, Origen, but not Jerome. So what do you say about Jerome? Remember, Jerome sent researchers down to the churches. He sent researchers to the Jewish churches to figure out apocryphal writings, for one. But while there, his researchers would have had conversations about their texts. And he would have found this information from the Jewish churches when he sent researchers down into Jerusalem to figure out what their texts consisted of, both Old Testament and New. And perhaps the reason they have the most statements about it is because they went to the place where it was originally published and to those churches themselves, and they had better records. James probably did not circulate too well because it was a predominantly Jewish letter. The Gentile letter circulated so well, including the four Gospels, because they were publishing them out to other Gentile churches. This letter was not published to Gentile churches. It was published to a Jewish church, which again would indicate early writing. And one of the things that I want to show later when I get into 1 Peter particularly, 1 Peter really borrows the format that James uses to the Jewish churches as this dispersion and amplifies that to the Gentile persecution that he deals with in Rome and talks about their dispersion. So it's an important thing to note that this dispersion writing started by Jewish churches being persecuted first. As the churches grew and expanded into the Gentile world and the gospel of Christ moved with it, Peter started borrowing James's format of using the idea of dispersion. And we'll give examples of this when we do first Peter, showing that he was also following that same instruction from apostolic and bishop advice as a pastor writing to persecuted people. And that's exactly what uh, Peter calls himself, being a shepherd in chapter 5, 1 Peter, writing to a flock that is needing help of the shepherd. So we see these connections. To me, I believe James can be seen as apostolic. It goes back to an early eyewitness. It goes back to somebody who knew the sermons of Jesus. I believe it was James, the brother of the Lord, James the Just. I believe he published this letter to the two dispersions, both east and west, to the 12 tribes. He did it around 46 to 49 AD, given the indicators I demonstrated to you and the reasoning I just gave you. And it was published very, very, very early on. And it maintained itself predominantly in Jewish churches, which is why it didn't disperse that great, which is why Origen had the information he did about it. Jerome did about from his research and study of it makes sense to me on the location. So giving all the information that we have here, I, I, I believe it is an authentic writing. I believe it's apostolic. I believe it's divinely inspired. I believe it's one of the New Testament scriptures and it belongs in our canon. And if you have any other questions about this, please feel free in our YouTube channel when this will be posted to put that in the comments section. And if you're on facts, please visit us on our website. Uh, go to explorechristianity.net. You can email us at connect at explorechristianity.net. Send your questions into me. I'd love to uh, correspond with you about this. But again, I do believe we have an authentic source. We have a reliable source through the epistle of James. 
and it is scripture. Thank you for tuning in. Please always, if you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe to our channel. Follow us. And if you are interested in supporting us financially on a monthly, even if it's $5 or $10 a month, you can do that on our website at explorechristianity.net. Uh, if you're on facts, uh, share this information with friends. Uh, I've noticed a lot of uh, volume coming in. A lot of downloads have been on these uh, episodes lately, and they're in all, all kinds of countries as well. Please share this along the way. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace to you.